This morning we're talking about the kingdom of God, and the kingdom of God is the realm where God rules and reigns. It's the place where everything is subject to His authority. And we can think of the kingdom of God in a couple of different ways. Um, One way is that God is the creator of all things. And so as the creator, technically His rule would be over everything that is created. And so in a general sense, He is Um, ruling over everything on the earth and all the people on the earth right now, currently, as we exist. But the other way to think about the kingdom of God is a little more specific, right? The first one is just kind of a general ruling over creation. Um, And the second one is a more specific rule over those people who submit to him as king. And so it's a much smaller group. Um, That kingdom of God doesn't necessarily have borders. You can't mark it on a map. Um, but it consists of the people who submit to God. And so we have this general concept of the kingdom of God all over, and then this specific concept of the kingdom of God that is made up of his people who are submitting to his rule um, in a more um, specific sense. And so as believers, we are in the more specific one, right? We submit to God's rule. We submit that he is Right, the rightful ruler of creation, and we follow him, and we try to do what he asks, and we command him. The difficult part for us is we're also in the general kingdom of God at the same time, and this general kingdom of God consists of a fallen, broken world. And so how do we live basically as citizens of a kingdom in rebellion, that the majority of people are in rebellion against the king, but we're trying to follow him? So how do we live in the midst of that? What does that look like? Right? How do we respond to government? How do we respond to other people? What do we do in the midst of all of those things? And so we're going to get the answers to those questions this morning as we see Jesus once again. He's going to be confronted um, by the religious leaders who are trying to trap him. They're trying to get rid of him. And so we're going to see three questions this morning. And how Jesus answers those is going to give us insight into how we can live in the kingdom. And so we're going to read from um, Mark chapter 12. Um, We're going to start in verse um, 13. And so if you're here with us, it's page 900 um, in your pew Bible in front of you. Um, If you're following online, you can open the YouVersion Bible app. If you find our event, then the verses will be there. But it's Mark chapter 12, um, verses 13 through 34. And we're just going to read it all together up front, and then we'll kind of work our way through it at the end. And so it says, and then, they, and then they, they would be the group from last week, which was the Sanhedrin, the priests, the scribes, the, everybody together. Their question didn't work. They didn't trap Jesus. So now they're going to send other people like, hey, it's you guys' turn. You guys go try, right? And so they're all going to try to trap Jesus. And so then they sent some of the Pharisees and the Herodians to Jesus to trap him in his words. And when they came, they said to him, teacher, We know you are truthful and don't care what anyone thinks, nor do you show partiality, but teach the way of God truthfully. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why are you testing me? Bring me a Daenerys and to look at. And they brought a coin. Whose image and inscription is this? He asked them. Caesar's, they replied, and Jesus told them, Give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they were utterly amazed at him. Sadducees, who say there is no res- resurrection, came to him and questioned him. Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, leaving a wife behind but no child, 
that man should take the wife and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first married a woman and dying left no offspring. The second also took her and he died leaving no offspring. And the third likewise, none of the seven left offspring. Last of all, the woman died too. Now in the resurrection, when they rise, whose wife will she be? Since she, the seven have married her. And Jesus spoke to them, isn't this the reason why you, you're mistaken? You don't know the scriptures or the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, haven't you read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the burning bush, how God said to him, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are badly mistaken." And one of the scribes approached, and when he heard them debating and saw that Jesus answered them well, he asked them, which command is the most important of all? And Jesus answered, the most important is, listen, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other command greater than these. And then the scribe said to him, you are right, teacher. You have correctly said that he is one and there is no one else except him. And to love him with all your heart and with all your understanding and with all your strength and to love your neighbor as yourself is far more important than all the burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God and no one dared question him any longer. And so we see these three questions, and so we're going to work through these one at a time. And the first one, um, we're going to see that the kingdom, the kingdom of God, impacts our life. And we see this in the question from the Pharisees. And so to understand what's really happening here, on each one of these, I'm going to give you a little bit of history, um, just so you understand more the concept. And so what's happening here is um, Judea became a Roman province about the year six right, A.D. or C.E., depending on which one you're familiar with. Um, the Romans required then the Jews to pay a yearly tax um, just because they were citizens of Rome, right? This was sort of like what we do, upkeep roads and have water and those kinds of things. So they said, hey, you need to pay this. Um, so there were three responses to the tax. Um, the zealots, think of these as like your extremely religious people, like going all in, they refused to pay the tax because they claimed if we pay the tax, then we're acknowledging that Rome has the right to rule over us, which they said he doesn't. Only a ruler from the line of David has the right to rule over us. <clears throat> the Pharisees paid it, but they strongly objected to it, right? They didn't want to pay it. They didn't think it was the right thing to do, but they paid it anyway, Right? I think that's how a lot of us feel about our taxes. Right? I don't really want to do it. I know I'm supposed to, so I just do it. Right? The Herodians paid it willingly because they supported Roman rule and their guy was in charge. So they're like, yeah, we're going to pay this. It's working out really well for us. So there's three responses. <clears throat> the interesting thing is the two groups who are challenging Jesus on this question, the Pharisees and the Herodians, did not agree on this issue. They themselves couldn't agree, but they come together to try to trap Jesus. And then we have, we're going to talk about the coin. The coin itself is a two-sided coin, obviously, just like ours. On, first, on one side, it has a picture of Caesar's face, 
And it says, Tiberius Caesar Augustus, son of the divine Augustus, basically saying that Caesar is a god, he is divine. On the other side, it says that basically Caesar's a high priest, and so he's the priest and ruler. And so if you look at the coin and Jesus is talking about that, if he says, right, let's pay the tax, he's sort of acknowledging that Caesar is a god and a high priest. And so that's why they think they have him trapped, because if he supports this, then he's technically supporting Caesar. And so as they get into the confrontation, they begin with a little bit of flattery, right? You're truthful. We know that you teach well. You're not partial, right? And so they kind of butter him up a little bit at the front, um, which is flattery, but it's also true. Those things are true about Jesus, Right? He doesn't care what anybody thinks. He does treat the truth of Scripture. He's not swayed to either side, and so he is impartial. And so they ask him, should we pay the tax? Right? If he says no, then he's in opposition to the Romans, and the Romans and Caesar have the right to come and take Jesus away, never to be seen again. But if he says yes, like we just talked about a minute ago, he would be acknowledging Caesar's authority and potentially his divinity, that he is a god. And so Jesus, in his response, says, hey, bring me a coin. Now, what's a little funny is he didn't have one, but they did, right? These people who didn't want to pay their taxes and weren't sure they should do it, they had a coin ready, like, in their pocket. So just a little fun. Then we get the classic line from Jesus. I think if you've been in church or around church people, you've probably heard this quote before. He says, give to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. <clears throat> and this quote, I think, has been used for many things throughout its history. But I think there are two important things that we can understand um, based on the context and the situation where Jesus says this. And the first is, this is actually a clue to how we view our government, right? Because the quote, we often use it to say, hey, look, the government has its realm, and it's over here kind of in this bubble, and then God has his realm, and it's over here in this bubble, right? And never the two shall meet, right? That's where sort of our concept of separation of church and state could sort of come from, is in this concept of these two are two separate circles that don't come together. There's no overlap, so Caesar or the government has the, is in charge of this, and God is in charge of this, right? We may call this, right, the secular and the sacred, these two circles. Now, that sounds good, and it sort of sounds right or feels right, but that's not actually what's happening here. Because I think we need to realize it's not two separate circles. That's not what happens with the government and the rule of God, right? You have to think of it as a circle within a circle, right? The role of government, the role of Caesar, yes, he has some authority, but that circle of his authority is inside a bigger circle that includes God's authority. And so we saw that in the last few weeks that, right, the religious leaders and Caesar are only given authority because God allowed them to have it, right? It's not independent of God's authority. Caesar isn't doing his thing over here and God's over here and Caesar can do whatever he wants whenever he wants. No, he's still under the big circle of God's authority, so we see this, I think, a little differently. So what Jesus is saying is, as a people, we do have obligations, in this case to Caesar, we would say to our government, that are okay for us to follow, to do, because 
Yes, he has authority in this realm, but God is over all things. And so he's saying we can do these things and be good citizens and pay our taxes and obey the government as long as it doesn't conflict with Scripture and what God is asking us to do biblically. So he's saying it's okay to pay your taxes, and you should, because the government does have authority to do this. Um, A little bit of a side note, it is actually good, I think, for Christians to do this because the government actually does help us in that if the government doesn't give us roads and running water and all of these other things and all of these laws that kind of keep things orderly, it makes it really hard for Christians to meet and to share the gospel and to survive, right? So the government just in itself is a good thing for us because it provides, I think, in the United States a very easy way for us to be able to share the gospel and build relationships with people and get to know people because our our civilization is organized, right? We're all together in this. So that's good, a good thing. And so the second thing is, right, he's saying give to Caesar what is Caesar because Caesar's face is on the coin, right? It belongs to him. His face is on it. You should give it to him. And so obviously that's, right, his face is on it. You should give it to him. But Jesus is also saying more than that, and that's where we pick up the second half of this quote. Because he's saying this actually for both parts, right? Give to Caesar what is Caesar's because his face is on the coin. You give it to him, right? But for whose, whoever has God's, whatever has God's image on it, it belongs to him, right? Whatever has God's image on it belongs to God and you give it to him. I think he's intentionally using this word, image, right? Because if you think of other places that you hear the word image, it takes you all the way back to Genesis, right? Where he says, you are created in the image of God, right? That God's image is on all of us. His face is on all of us, and so we belong to him. And we give to him what belongs to him. And so if his image is on us, then we give ourselves to him. Right? That's the second part of this. And it, it struck me this week that we don't actually talk about that much, that part as much in this quote, right? That we are image bearers, that God's image is on us. And so since we belong to him, we give ourselves back. We submit to him and his reign as the king and creator. And so instead of trying to build our own kingdoms, instead of trying to rule our own lives and do our own things, we submit to God and his kingdom. We bear his image everywhere we go. At the grocery store, you bear his image. At the doctor's office, you bear his image. At school, at home, in traffic, When you are alone, when you're with a group of people, God's image is on you and you belong to him. In all of those situations, in all places, in all times, God's image is stamped on us. And so in all places, in all times, we belong to God. right? And this changes, if you think about it this way, this changes the way we view our lives. This changes the way we think about what we're doing. Is It's not really us doing that, but it's us belonging to God in all situations. And so it impacts how we see things and how we act and how we do things, knowing that we belong to him. 
And so we give ourselves to God because we belong to him. Now, the second thing that we see from the Sadducees is that the kingdom brings greater life. And so a little bit of history of the Sadducees. Um, some of this you may know. Um, Sadducees, just as a group, they don't believe in the resurrection, um, that it happens. They actually also don't believe in angels or spirits. Um, so this is going to factor into some of the things that we see in the questions and the answers. Um, Sadducees, as a whole, hold to only the Pentateuch, which is the first five books of the Old Testament. So if it's not in the first five books of the Old Testament, they're not buying it, which is why some of these things they're, they just don't believe in because they're like, there's no case for resurrection or angels or spirits in the first five books of the Old Testament. So they don't hold to any of those. And so the interesting part is they're asking a question about something that they don't believe actually happens. Right? They're asking a question about the resurrection when they think it's not going to happen, which is a little bit what they're trying to do. Um, they're basically saying, you know, you guys believe this thing, and it seems a little silly. And just to make you feel how silly it really is, we're just going to ask you the most ridiculous question we can think of that would cause you problems. And so that's why they go through this law of, you know, you have to marry your brother's wife if he doesn't have any offspring. It is a law in the Old Testament. That's what you're supposed to do. And so they're just like, well, if you do this seven times, then if you all are resurrected together, then whose wife is she, right? Who does she belong to? And so they're trying kind of intentionally to ask a ridiculous question. It's sort of the, you know, can God make a rock so big he can't pick it up? It's kind of that kind of question, right? And so Jesus' response has two parts, right? You don't know the scriptures and you don't know the power of God. And so he will explain the scriptures to them and show them the power of God beyond their understanding, but he does it in reverse order. And so first he talks about knowing the scriptures, and he talks about being the God of the living. And so he says, right, in, is he, when God is talking to Moses at the burning bush, he says, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And so what he's saying is, this is what we would call the patriarchs of the faith, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Um, they're, they're not, they, they may be dead, but they're not gone. They haven't disappeared. They aren't completely gone, but they're still alive. And Jesus is using a verse from Exodus to prove this, which is part of the scriptures that the Sadducees would say, oh yeah, that has authority. We can trust in that. So he intentionally goes to a place that they would acknowledge was authoritative in, in their lives. And so when God says he's the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, he is implying that he has an ongoing relationship with them. The covenant he made with them to create a people for himself is an ongoing thing, right? If they die, and that's the end, they don't exist anymore, because that's also what the Sadducee says. When you die, that's it. It's over. Lights out, no afterlife, nothing else. So if Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are dead, they're gone. There is no obligation for God to keep the covenant to them because it's over. Right? There's nothing left to do in their response to them. And so, but he's saying he is still their God and he is still working out the covenant he made with them. And so he's saying, just as I've protected them, I will protect you. My covenant with them continues because they are not gone. 
He is the protector and the savior of the living, not the dead. And so the Sadducees assumed that death was the end, so God doesn't um, keep his covenant, but Jesus is basically saying, look, God is the ruler, and death doesn't defeat him. It is not the end in, in God's eyes. It doesn't defeat his covenant. He conquers death, and he keeps his covenant going through Jesus. And so the call is to know the Scriptures, to examine them, to read them, to study, to meditate on them, to see what they teach us about who God is, to see what they teach us about Jesus. Right? A greater life comes through knowing the Scriptures. But then he talks about knowing God's power, right? A, this new life. And this is the answer where he gets, they neither marry nor give, are given in marriage, but they are like the angels. Now, I have to admit up front, historically, I don't like this verse. Um, I've always struggled with it. One of the reasons is um, I really love my wife and I really like spending time with her. And so I would like to that con- to continue like for as long as possible. And so if we can do that for all eternity, I'm good with that. And I would actually like to do that. Um, and so this verse kind of says, well, we're not really going to be married then. So I'm just like, well, what does that look like? And so just I'm working through it, right? And this is going to help all of us, but it's just my weird little thing. Okay, but I wanted to share up front just so we got all the cards on the table. So I think this helps us understand it better. And so... In the resurrection, people won't get married and be married, right? One reason is this. On earth, we were given this mandate from God way back in Genesis, right, to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And so in order to do that, God created the institution of marriage so that we could create more humans to be able to fill the earth with people. And because people don't live forever on earth, we sort of need this continuous supply of new people to fill the earth and fulfill this mandate that God has given us. So marriage is to required, we would say, from Scripture in order to fill the earth with people who know, love, and serve God. Now, when you get to heaven... And it's for all eternity, and we're all immortal and live forever. Um, We don't really need more people, right? And if you think about the concept of the universal church, of all believers from all times and all places, that's a lot of people already, right? And so we have the new heavens and the new earth already filled with people who know, love, and serve God. And so there's no need to create new humans because we already have accomplished the goal that God has given for us. And so there's no need to procreate when we already have all of this. That's one of the reasons why people aren't married or given in marriage in heaven because we're in, we're, it's already taken care of. And so because of that, there's no need for marriage, but he doesn't say that there aren't close relationships. He doesn't say you won't be together. He doesn't say you won't recognize anybody. He just says you won't have marriage as we currently know it. So we see in this God's power and his ability to raise people and to raise them to a new kind of life, a better life. And he also says we will be like angels, Another thing the Sadducees don't believe in, 
right? But I think he's referring to a couple of things here if we think about angels. One, angels are eternal, right? Which we just kind of talked about that a second ago, so I'm not going to go any more into that one. But second, the life of an angel is centered around fellowship and service to God. That's why they exist, to serve God and to be with him. So in the resurrection, our lives will be the same. We will be focused on fellowship and serving God, a life centered on communion with God. That's what we're signing up for, right? A greater life, a better life in the presence of Jesus, in the presence of God for all eternity, right? It's better better than what we have now. It points to the power and the greatness of God. In this new life, we will be in the presence of God. We will be standing in the presence of the King. And so, if we circle back on earth, right, if you ignore your spouse for something, you usually get in trouble for it, right? You get an elbow, or you get a look, or you get a comment later. Right? Because you're not supposed to ignore your spouse. Your spouse is super important. Right? But in this new life, when we're in the presence of God, when we're in the presence of Jesus, he is so much greater than anything on this earth that not only is it okay to ignore your spouse when you get there, you should be ignoring your spouse when you get there. Because Jesus is that much greater than anything else. And to be in his presence and to worship him and to be serving him and to be in fellowship with him is greater than anything that we can imagine. Right? So we'll be in his presence. It's a greater life. The resurrection life is greater than what we have now. And then he gets to the third one and it talks about the kingdom demands our life. And so a scribe comes up to him, um, and just a little bit of history on this one so you know kind of what's happening in this question. Um, they counted 613 commands in the Mosaic Law. There were 365 positive and 248 negative. Um, they recognized as a group that all of the laws did not have equal authority, and so they kind of divided them into what we would call heavy commands, ones that are serious and you need to really follow, and light commands, ones that are like more like suggestions. Right? We, you can do these most of the time, but they were basically asking, hey, which one of these is like the most heavy commandment? Right? Which, if we just had to do one, what is it? And so there's also something interesting in this one as well. Right? And all of the other ones, it has these groups coming to Jesus to ask him questions, to trap him. But if you notice in this one, it's just one guy. It doesn't say all the scribes. It just says one of the scribes. And it doesn't say anything about trapping him. And this one, as we are hopefully listening to the conversation at the beginning, this one feels different. Right, than the other ones. This is, doesn't sound like somebody trying to trap Jesus. It sort of sounds like a curious follower who is trying to really understand how this is supposed to work. And so he asks a legitimate question, I think, from him, and he gets a legitimate response in Jesus' answer. And so he asks, right, what is the most important commandment? 
And just for fun, if you look, Jesus, of course, gives him two um, instead of just one, because that's how Jesus works. But his response is actually from Deuteronomy chapter 6, which is a passage of Scripture that all Jews repeated twice a day. And so they would be very familiar when Jesus begins to say this. I'm going to read his quote and then kind of what comes on after that, just so you can hear what they would be thinking about when Jesus says this. From Deuteronomy chapter 6, this is 4 through 9. It says, Listen, Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. And so that's what Jesus says. Here's the rest of it that comes after that. It says, These words that I'm giving you today are to be in your heart. Repeat them to your children. Talk about them when you sit in your house and when you walk along the road and when you lie down and when you get up. Bind them as a sign on your hand and let them be a symbol on your forehead. Write them on the doorpost of your house and on your city gates. And so the first one that Jesus gives is this thing that all Jews would be familiar with, right? Because they were supposed to say this twice a day, right? You're supposed to teach it to your children. You're supposed to talk about when you're standing up, when you're sitting down, when you're laying down, when you're at home, when you're on the road. So this was to be the center of their life. This teaching, this law, this commandment to love the Lord your God with all that you have is supposed to be kind of constantly in their lives, on their tongues, talking about it in every situation, right? That God is one. He is one. He isn't divided. He isn't separate. He is one, and he also is the one. He is the one true God. He is the one above all others, He is their one God. He is the one who has made a covenant with the Israelites. So this is sort of a a little battle against polytheism to say there are many gods, or I can worship kind of all the gods I want, and they're all kind of here together. Now he's saying God is above all of those. There is only one true God. And then he talks about loving God, right? With all you are, heart, mole, heart, soul, mind, and strength, to love him with all that you have, to give everything over to him because you belong to him, right? If you think back to his image being on you, you love him because you belong to him. The good news for us, this isn't just a one-way street, right? We don't just love God and get nothing in return, We love God and we are able to love him because he has loved us first. And he has loved us completely first. He has given himself to us and he has held nothing back from us, even giving his own son to die in our place. We love him because he loved us. And then we love people. Love your neighbor as yourself. And so the Jews who are listening would take this as, hey, I'm supposed to love other Jews because they're my neighbors, right? But Jesus, as he often does with them, he expands it, not here, but in other places to say, right, with the parable of the Good Samaritan, that your neighbor is anybody, basically, who's around you and you can help or who needs help. And so you're to love those people as yourself. And so you give him all that you are, and if you belong to him, this is what you do. You love the one that you belong to, and you love others that also belong to him. 
right? All of our neighbors, all the people that you meet on the street, all the people that you work with, all of those people are image bearers created in the image of God. And so we love them as image bearers. They belong to God also, just like us. And so that's why we love them. And so what comes next is a little bit, of, a little bit funny to me because the scribe says, hey, you're right. Those are the greatest commandments. And I always think it's funny when somebody else tells Jesus that he's right. Right? If we look back in history, it's just like, of course Jesus is right. We should just say, okay. But he says Jesus is right. And he says, kind of repeats what he says. And he says, loving God and loving your neighbor is more important than the sacrifices. And so what he's saying is, loving God and loving people is more important than following the religious rules and rituals. All of the things that we're supposed to do, all of the things in these 612 other laws, right? Because if this is the greatest one, those are not as important as loving you and loving others. But if you notice, Jesus responds one more time to this. And I think this is actually a little bit surprising what we see at the end. Because we would think, oh, Jesus says, I'm supposed to love God and I'm supposed to love my neighbor. And the guy says, hey, you're right. I'm supposed to love God, and I'm supposed to love my neighbor. And so we may think, well, Jesus' response is, well, good. If you know that, then you're in the kingdom of God. You're there. You've made it. But that's not what he says. What does he say? He says, you're not far from the kingdom of God. You're just, you're close, but you're not quite there. There's something else you need to do. And I think we can look at that in a couple of different ways. Right? First is, we need to move past just knowing those things to actually doing them. Right? It's good to know that the way to the kingdom is to love God and to love people. It's good to know that loving God is greater than all the religious rituals and routines that we think gained us God's approval. But you have to move past knowing them to actually doing them, to actually serving God with all that we have, to listen and to obey without holding anything back, right? to love our neighbors fully and sacrificially. So we need our love for God and our love for others to move us to action. But secondly, it's not just to love God in a general sense, but to specifically understand who Jesus is as well. Remember, this scribe is talking with Jesus. He is asking him questions. But we see no indication in this conversation that the scribe truly knows or understands or acknowledges who Jesus is. He doesn't seem to make the connection that Jesus is the Son of God, that he is the Messiah that he is the one who has come to save him by dying on the cross for his sins. And so that next step of really getting into the kingdom from a general sense, getting into that specific kingdom of God's followers, is acknowledging that Jesus is the way to enter God's kingdom fully. 
It's confessing that he is Lord and he is Savior. It's submitting to his authority. It's submitting to his ownership in your life. It's saying, I belong to you because you have rescued me. You have saved me. You have died for me. And as we trust in him, we move from the general rule of God to that specific rule where we become part of his family, part of his kingdom, the eternal kingdom that will serve him forever. And so I think the challenge at the end of this is don't stop short. Make the final step to enter the kingdom fully. Yes, loving God and loving people is great. But this seems to apply that at some level, right, if you're only doing those things and you don't acknowledge Jesus as your Savior, you're not quite there. And so make the final step and enter the kingdom fully, not in a general sense, but a specific sense, in a fuller sense. Come to know and to serve the one whose image you bear. And we enter the kingdom not by religious activity, but by a relationship with Jesus. A relationship that results in loving God supremely and others genuinely. And so let's all remember and serve Jesus. Acknowledge him as your Savior, as the one who has paid the penalty for your sins. So that we can enter the kingdom. We can follow him. And then as we do that, as we are changed, it's way easier to love God with all that you have and love your neighbor as yourself as you submit to Christ. It's way easier to do once we have done that. So let's submit to Jesus and his authority in our lives. Will you pray with me this morning? God, we come before you and we thank you for who you are. We thank you for the sacrifice of your son. We thank you that you do actually call us and want us to have a fuller life, something greater than what we have right now, even though sometimes our life may feel so great or so loving or so full that we're like, it just, it can't get better than this. Or I can't imagine not having this or having something else, but, but you give us something greater. You give us something fuller a new life. So God, I pray that you would help us to seek new life in you, to seek new life through Christ and what he has done for us, that we wouldn't stop short, that we wouldn't just do a list of things and say, hey, I'm serving God, but we would submit ourselves fully to you, that we would give the trust for our life and for our salvation to Christ. Because that's how we fully enter your kingdom. So God, I pray that you would help us to examine our hearts, to think of places that the Spirit would reveal to us, things where we're just trying to do it on our own and we're not acting as if we are your image bearers, that we belong to you. God, so also help us to remember that we bear your image everywhere we go, that we are basically billboards for you for showing what you're like, your character, your values, how you live, how you love others, how you care for others, how you sacrifice, your grace and your mercy. 
So help us to reflect your image well. That when people look at us, yes, they may see us, but they will really see you. And that that testimony, that picture that that looks different, that looks otherworldly, would entice people to ask questions, to seek us out, to build relationships with us so that we can tell them the greatness of who you are. That you are the king and you are ruling and you're the creator over all things and you rule with grace and you rule with mercy and you desire what is best for all those who are in your kingdom. So help us to seek you fully and give our lives completely over to you. In your name I pray, amen.